Welcome to the Higher Potential Living Podcast, where we discuss improving quality of life by exploring mind, body, and spirit through a mindful lens. Here's your host, Jason Marichello. Hello, and thanks for joining me. On today's episode, we have Drew Dudley. Drew is a keynote speaker, a coach, teacher, author, and of course, a leader. Through his own adversity in life, Drew developed the Day One Leadership Program. This has caught the attention of many people all around the world. And in fact, Drew's TEDx talk has more than 5 million views. So definitely worth checking out. On today's conversation, we discussed the day one approach to leadership, but we also ended up having some very real discussions on simply dealing with the cards that life deals us sometimes. I had a fantastic time connecting with Drew today, and I hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome. I am joined today by Drew Dudley of Day One Leadership. Drew, thanks so much for agreeing to meet with me today. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here, man. It's going to be a blast. So, you know, I've had a bunch of different people on this podcast and I've been trying to shape it in terms of like who really gets across some of these messages that I just maybe am not the best person that I'm passionate about, but maybe not the best person to speak about it. And I don't remember how much you or I don't know how much you remember about when we first met, but I was in the audience at one of your talks, didn't really know who you were before that moment. And there were some really powerful messages. So now this is like going back many years now. I can't even think maybe like seven years or so. And here we are again reconnecting and I'm excited to jump into this episode. But for those that don't really know much about day one leadership or who you are, like you have some some messages that are really powerful and a few different fields here. But I'm curious when I when I talk to people who get really passionate about things, there's usually that spark moment, there's that aha moment that kind of gets you going, and really inspires you to spread your message to the rest of the world. So where did day one leadership really start? Man, that it's a really interesting question. I'm going to try not to answer all of your questions with 10 minute stories, but it's really an evolution. I mean, there's the moment where the concept of day one becomes the package in which I want to put my work, but really the ideas behind it start a long, long time ago. I mean, I could trace it back to the death of a young guy uh, back in, uh, I guess, 2000, and, uh, 2000 uh, who was only 23 years old who was this incredibly impactful guy on our university campus. Uh, but, you know, he lived his life creating impact for people all around him. He was so connected to other people because when he walked in the room, everybody felt like more was possible. And when you're in university and when cool used to mean what cool meant in high school, which is, all right, you're afraid of people. Like the cool kids in high school, you were afraid of what they could do to you socially. As you get into real life, the cool people, like the genuinely good people, are the ones who make you feel safer when they enter the room. And when uh, this young guy died, I remember being at his funeral and thinking, you know, wow, there's a thousand people here. And he never saw his 24th birthday. And I realized it's because he had lived his life to matter every day. And I was living my life for people I hadn't met yet. In high school, it was for university admissions counselors and university it was for grad school admissions counselors. Then it's for your first job. Then it's for your promotion. A lot of our life, we live for people we haven't met yet. And when I realized that for all the stuff that I'd accomplished in my life academically and awards, 
here was this guy who would focus more on mattering to people. Mm-hmm. And he did, in fact, matter more than I did, who might have had a more impressive resume. And as you start rolling along through life, more and more of these moments start to rise up. I did a TED talk on one of those moments that you know gets referred to as the lollipop moment, where a woman came up to me four years after a moment in, my, in her life where I had accidentally had a really major impact on her. And she reminded me that we spent a lot of time worrying about our plans and how well our plans are rolling out. And really the biggest legacy we're going to leave behind is almost always going to be a result of the unplanned consequences of our everyday actions. And I started to realize that my legacy in my mind was all in the future, what I might accomplish and had everything to do with my titles and my power, my accolades and how good the schools to which I went were. And then all of a sudden this woman comes up and says, you know, this may, you know, I realize this may be the biggest impact I ever had on another human being. And I wasn't paying attention. I had a young a guy in the desert once when I was on tour in the Qatar who told me it had been his first day of work for 17 years. Mm-hmm. Because on your first day of work, you have this feeling of excitement, this feeling of pride. And, you know, then it starts to evolve. And he just said, you know, it has been my first day for 17 years. Five years ago, I bought the company, but it's still my first day. And it always should be. And then as I move into experiences of my own life, losing 100 pounds after being refused uh, the opportunity to ride a roller coaster at Universal Studios because I wouldn't fit mm-hmm. and decided I'm going to lose 100 pounds. And that said, okay, on the first day, here are the non-negotiable behaviors that you start. And then you simply focus on that over and over again. When I realized I finally needed to address my alcohol abuse, one of the things that's so confident or so constant in 12-step programs is if you don't want to have a drink for the rest of your life, you know, you choose not to have a drink today. Mm-hmm. And then you treat every day of the rest of your life as if it is your first day of recovery, because it means you can't rely on what you've accomplished in the past, but you also don't get overwhelmed by how much more there still is to do. I have to fight an addiction every day of my life. I hope there's thousands of days left in my life. And to think about that fight over and over again is overwhelming. It's enough to make you not bother. But if you focus only on that non-negotiable behavior today, that's manageable. And so for me, every voyage to something you want, to mental health, which is another voyage I went on, mental health, physical health, business success, they all begin with a day one, which is when you identify the non-negotiable behaviors that have to be a part of every day of this mission. And that made me realize, let's talk about leadership in the same way. How do we help people figure out the non-negotiable leadership behaviors? And I define a leadership behavior on a personal level as moments of interpersonal impact. How do we become more conscious of those? How do we have a set of non-negotiable behaviors every day? And then I teach a process about how to actually execute on them. You have to trick your brain because life will distract you. Work will distract you. That's just part of it. And I guess that's my version of mindfulness, which is let's focus on certain consistent things that exist now because it keeps you from resting on your laurels and it keeps you from being overwhelmed by what's still ahead of you. And I talk about, okay, how do we identify those behaviors and how do we embed them into our behavior? But for me, it was all about day one. On day one of everything, there is an inherent humility, commitment, and forgiveness. 
And you mix commitment, humility, and forgiveness together in every day of whatever you're trying to accomplish, that'll always move you forward. Every day is day one, but what's possible on the 100th, the 1,000th, the 10,000th day one is always more impressive than what's possible on the first. Mm. But while everything may change on those day ones, there are certain core things that can't. And in a lot of ways, day one leadership is about identifying the stuff that doesn't change in order to give you the foundation necessary for everything around you to change. Wow. That was a, a pretty awesome answer. And one of the things that I have always loved, you actually, I think for the first time, just I think because we were talking about it before we actually hit it record, I heard you use the word mindfulness, but that was one of the things that's always astounded me. You have been, always been talking about all these mindfulness techniques and I've never before today heard you use the word mindfulness, like talking about that day one and even that that moment there you do you described about making that impact in that person's life. You know, this is something that's such a big thing when people ask, OK, what is mindfulness? So we hear this term now and you and I talked a little bit before we jumped on the recording about how like 10 years ago, you would never as a professional speaker, you would never in a corporate setting drop the, the M word. But now it's becoming a buzzword and everything. So I get asked a lot as someone who is kind of known for mindfulness a little bit. What is it? How do we achieve it and all this kind of stuff? And you're hitting so many of the key points here that impact that you made on that woman's life. You know, I had a client, it reminded me of a story. I had a client, he was one of my, I, I shouldn't pick favorites with my coaching clients, but we he was- have the, favorites we have particularly dynamic or particularly impactful. You yeah. say when you come from the education system, uh, we don't have favorite students, that would be wrong. I do have particularly dynamic students who inspire me at a high level, but no, I don't have a favorite. Of course not. We well, this fellow been. certainly inspired me. He was this big firefighter and uh, was very keen on, on learning about mindfulness. And I remember one time I had him doing a, this program about like finding these five pieces of gratitude and it's called the pleasant event calendar and going throughout your day. And he had picked his little girl up. She was little girl. She was 14 years old. He was picking her up from uh, high school. I think it was the first week she was in high school. And he'd come to sit in my office and I asked him, okay, what were some of the pleasant events that you recall from today? And he said, well, now that I'm thinking back, when I picked my little girl up, we were driving back home and I had a particularly tough day. I had my arm on the center console and she actually reached over and she grabbed my hand. And as, as a little girl, she used to always hold, like she was a daddy's girl. She would always hold my hand. And you know what, looking back, that was like, that's really a great thing that happened to me today. And I said, amazing. How did you embrace that in that moment? And he said, well, you know, I really, I didn't give it much thought in the moment. And, you know, I had so many things on my mind, but looking back now, and I said, wow, amazing. Let's dissect this more. What could that experience have been like if you just gave a little squeeze in return when she held your hand, you gave a little squeeze or not taking your eyes off the road for too long, just turned over to her for a second and just made eye contact, one second of eye contact. And we ended up having this whole conversation of like, when we can be more mindful or more in the present moment, like it's day one, more mindful, how those moments, time freezes, time slows down. And those impacts that we're making are not only huge, like for your story, for anyone who hasn't heard the lollipop story, definitely check out Drew's uh, TED talk. He explains it well in there. But this is like a moment he didn't even remember 
I'm speaking for you now, Drew. <laughs> a moment you didn't even remember, but was huge for her in that moment. Time probably slowed. She probably thought about that, replayed that moment in her mind over and over and over again. And that's the power of every interaction that we have. And yet it, we glance over it. So maybe I'll, I'll put this on you because it's a question that's always put on me. How do we start to create more of those moments that we can draw from those takeaways? How do we help bring ourselves into that day one mentality? I guess let me pitch to somebody else's story, which mm. is weird because somebody put out to me say, where do you get these ideas that you put out in your speeches? And I said, well, if you take a step back and look at my speeches, most of the ideas that get thrown out there aren't mine. They're the stories of other people's insights that I've been lucky enough to be, to be exposed to. And either they choose not to, or they never have the opportunity to convey this brilliance out to the world. And I guess I'm the lucky person who sort of got born with the skill and the love I think is more important of sharing stories because so like the story is the basic unit of human understanding and a lot of people either aren't willing or able to tell their stories often because they've talked themselves out of their story's importance in the world mm. so I guess here's a tip that I was given by these two brilliant men it's their story so I, I took a train trip across Canada once and met these two remarkable men, uh, Jimmy and Earl, 91, 89 years old. Amazing. And I sit down with them and I start talking. Uh, we start talking the small talk. So they asked, what do you do? And I said, I run a leadership program at the University of Toronto. And they're like, oh, you're an educator. I said, yeah. So Earl, the younger one says, well, what's one thing you want every single student who goes through one of your programs to understand? And I never really been, been asked that about boil it down to what is a fundamental principle if you had to pick one. Also the phrase, if you had to pick one is a problematic phrase always. <laughs> Life very rarely involves something as simple as, well, pick one of them out. Mm. But uh, they said, if you had to pick one thing, I thought about it and I said, I want students to realize that they're distracted from the most important things in their life. Because on the first day of workshops, I ask, how many of you know how much money you made last year? Part-time jobs, all the hands go up. How many of you know your GPA? All the hands go up. How many of you know who sings Party in the USA? And all the hands go up. But then, which of you can tell me the single happiest moment of your life? Mm. And no hands go up. And I say, money marks and Miley. Everybody's paying attention. But the single happiest moment of your life, you've all missed. Mm -hmm. And you've been educated into looking like that. And I sat back thinking I was going to get what I usually get after telling that little tale. People saying, nice, like that's, we need more of that. We need students to be refocused off just their grades and their jobs. But Earl leans forward and says, yeah, that's because it's a dumbass question. <laughs> I'm like, what? You think that's a stupid question? You don't think it's important? for them to realize that they've skipped over being present for the happiest moments in their life. They never even saw them. And he goes, I think it's way more important for you as an educator to understand how dangerous that question is. Because in the question itself, it plays on this premise that's already in our society that says the things to celebrate are the absolute best. And everything else has a huge chasm between that best and everything else. Mm -hmm. And he says, look, you get one happiest moment in your life. 
one most beautiful sunset, one most delicious meal, one most dazzling kiss. You get one. But numbers two through 50 are pretty great. Mm-hmm. But that question reflects a truth is that every time we experience an incredible moment in our lives, we instinctively compare it to the best moment. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't exceed that moment, it actually we actually actively diminish how good what we just had was. Mm-hmm. Because if it's not at the best, it automatically gets diminished because we're like, oh, that was amazing. But he said, we have to, he goes, people ignore most of the great moments in their life because it is not the greatest. He said, greatest is the enemy of great when it comes to gratitude. He says, we need to let go of this philosophy. And I said, all right. I was pretty stunned by that. So I'm fast forwarding to the point where I was able to say, all right, what do I tell them otherwise? It's easy enough to say, don't do that. But where's your to do? Mm-hmm. And he said, draw a line in your mind. It's called the great mind. And every time something good happens to you, that meal, that sunset, that kiss, that moment, just ask one question. Was it above the great line? That's the only question, not our instinct to say, where does it rank? But was it above the great line? And if it was, that's the only thing that matters. You throw it into your attic of memories, your attic of gratitude. Because right now we stack it on our ranking board of gratitude, Mm -hmm. but an attic you can go into and there's just shit everywhere. Mm -hmm. You can pick up any piece and celebrate it for what it brought you for the memory. And he said, but right now we rank them. It's like those old CD towers where, where does it fit within the tower? But Mm -hmm. it's much better simply to look at that. And, And Jimmy said, if you think of it like a poker game, you get one chip for the greatest in every category. Meal, sunset, kiss, sex, whatever. You get one chip for the best. But imagine with the great line, if you got a chip for everything above the great line. In the former, there's a limit to how big your stack can get. In the latter, there is an unlimited amount of riches that you can rake off the table. And I know that's a long answer to your question, but I think it goes back to as well. You know, I talk about mindfulness without saying mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Well, a mind, mindfulness by any other name is still that. And I think that they would never, they would never claim they were talking about mindfulness, mm-hmm. but that was 100% what they were talking about in that moment, which is to take these moments of positivity in our lives. And instead of, in some ways, it's better to not put them in the context of the rest of our lives. It's better to just say, here it is. And for me, that concept of the great line is, is amazing. The problem is whenever someone asks me, what's the happiest moment, I get to travel a lot too. So what's your favorite country? Best restaurant you've ever been to most beautiful place. I have to stop and tell that entire damn story (laughs) or I say to them, how about I give you five above the great line? So, but mindfulness is practiced under a lot of names and under a lot of guises, but mostly I think it's about being deliberate and conscious. I think Stanford put out a study that said 80% of the decisions we make at a given day aren't even decisions, they're habits. And it's kind of shocking to think that eight out of 10 decisions we make, we're not in control of. 80% of our lives is on autopilot. Mm-hmm. That's, that's troublesome and problematic for me. Mindfulness is about being deliberate in your actions, but also in your reflections, I think. 
Yeah, you definitely touched on some big things there. And, uh, you know, we talk about there's a lot of programs. One of the one of the best known um, programs on introducing people to mindfulness is the eight week mindfulness based uh, stress reduction program. John Kabat-Zinn put it out there. He was, you know, super influential in the 70s and all this. And one of the big things that came from that was recognizing autopilot as being a practice in of itself. And when you can actually recognize autopilot, once again, you have awareness. Once again, you're in the present moment. And it's this like constant, almost like game with the mind, if you were to try to catch those moments of autopilot. And again, it's so funny because this can all come back into that idea of the day one leadership. Like you use the word autopilot. I know some people who are in the uh, aviation industry, a friend of a really good friend of mine is a, a, a pilot. And when I was helping him kind of study for his captain's exam and we were playing around with the simulation machine, all this kind of stuff, I had no idea that majority of flying, not to diminish the skill and all this kind of stuff, the majority of flying is learning how to program automatic pilot. And what you prepare for in that industry, what you prepare for is what happens if the automatic pilot fails? What happens when things go wrong? Because if everything's going right, a flight is not bad. You plug some things into a computer, it does most of the work. You can even like land on automatic pilot. And yet imagine, like I, I look at my own story and I think about this because I before we had this podcast, I was reflecting on your messages and trying to get into the mindset of this podcast episode. And for me, because I have my corporate background, I ended up kind of experiencing a bit of my burnout and everything that led me to sell all my stuff and go travel the world for two years in search of the meaning of, you know, big air quotes here, the meaning of life and all this kind of stuff. For me, I took, I don't want to, it was a, it was a very powerful experience. I don't want to take it as like avoidance technique or any of that kind of stuff, but I looked at it and said, I need a change. I need to get out of here. That was my answer at that time. Whereas if you actually look at the the day one leadership, if you want to call it that, or this other approach that we're talking about, if I was able to reevaluate the way that I was experiencing my job, my lifestyle, there's so much that I could have gained from that. And coming back to that aviation example, if you're flying the same flight over and over again, we're going from you know, Toronto to BC, let's say, because that's where I am and that's where you are. Going to Toronto to BC, making that flight over and over again, programming the automatic pilot, that flight can start to feel so mundane. You can get so caught up in the regular, seeing all these dials, all this kind of stuff. But then imagine something goes wrong. Automatic pilot stops, it shuts off. Your hands are white knuckled on that steering wheel. And all of a sudden now you're going to notice everything you're going to be looking around like holy crap when was that mountain there before and and since when does this thing start to spin like this when i do this and now you're going to be hyper hyper aware and you know for better or for worse that's going to be a much more exciting flight if you have that ability to turn off or in that case forced upon to turn off the automatic pilot and i think back to how different my experience in the corporate setting would have been if I had the wherewithal to do that, to look at it and say like, you know what, all of these things I'm feeling about entitlement, making me feel like I should be climbing the corporate ladder faster, making me feel like I should be earning more money, making me feel like, you know, I'm just stifling myself and, and all this kind of stuff. There's so much entitlement that the ego is just like throwing out there. If I was able to look at it and say, how privileged did I feel when I first landed this job? 
how amazing is it that I'm coming to a place here, I have a pretty awesome group of people that I'm working with every day. And like you say, look at it in terms of every day has kind of been my first day, it would be a very different world. And so that's a, such a huge thing that John Kabat-Zinn would bring forward is that idea of recognize the automatic pilot, still honor when we need it. Like you, you, you mentioned just now talking about how reactionary we are in so much of our day, those habits, some of those reactions, some of those habits save our lives. Being able to like instinctually slam on the brakes when something jumps out in front of us, that's amazing. That's something to celebrate that we have that within us. But when we can choose when we wanna be responding versus reacting, and that we actually get to choose that, man, that's like that's like a superpower. I would choose that over like power of flight or x-ray vision or anything like that. So yeah, definitely, definitely can appreciate what you're kind of what you're kind of leaning into there. I think my superpower would be I'd be able to eat any sandwich anywhere with zero chance of being able to spill it on on yourself. Because <laughs> one, you're not gonna cook up some nemesis. No one's gonna come out of the woodwork to be your nemesis if your superpower is meatball sub while driving. Uh, I think that would probably be mine, which might be uh, less aspirational than it should be. But hey, man, the whole day one process is, is it's not about restarting every day. It's about recommitting every day. Mm. And I guess one of the underlying themes, I think it's important is that Look, you don't want to go to work with the same skill level you had on day one. Right. What you want to go to work with is the same level of commitment, humility, and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sometimes I have to clarify that because people are, and someone said to me, I don't want to relive some day ones. You know, I, I had day one after I lost the woman I loved and I, in no way, shape or form, would I ever want to relive that day. But the exercise of starting to break down difficult times into manageable periods Right, the day she died, from that moment forward for a couple of weeks, it was how do I fill this next hour? Mm -hmm. And then it became how do I fill this day? Then this week, and eventually life sort of returns to a version where your life is no longer driven by trying to distract from the trauma. Mm -hmm. But the idea is there are certain moments where you have to focus on, on this. So it's, it's yeah, it, it, day one isn't about reliving a whole day. Day one is about committing to certain behaviors. And what those behaviors are will adjust based on what you're facing. But I think that's a big piece is that's autopilot. Mm -hmm. And autopilot is, as you say, recognizing it. But hey, it ultimately is about saying, I'm going to build my skills to deal with when the autopilot fails by practicing all the way along. Because even if you know that you have to, because what they're going to train for is, and all the simulations are about when the autopilot fails, mm -hmm. right? You're doing the same thing every day. That is the baseline. Where you grow is outside of that when you realize the baseline will always stay the same. And your growth is everything outside these non-negotiable things. That's what always changes. But in the face of, all, of that always changing, certain things should always stay the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I can definitely appreciate what you're saying. And I think of, I think of uh, even that ability, like I, we were actually talking about this before we jumped on and hit record, but we were talking about, you know, some of these expressions that people put out there that maybe give the wrong suggestion of what we really want to be aiming for. I'm trying to think of some of them, but we talked about like, uh, do you remember some of the ones we mentioned? Yeah. Uh, laughter is the best medicine. I, I asked a, a friend of mine and 
she was like, hells no. Like sometimes the best medicine is a bath, wine and a good cry. The first time I, I ever had sort of experience with realizing that some of these, these mantras are crap is uh, not crap, flawed, <laughs> incomplete. There's a right. morsel of truth, but uh, I asked a, a really successful former student of mine during an interview. All right. Uh, what's one like cultural cliche, I called it, that you wish would stop being repeated. And he said, life is short. He said, mm -hmm. life is not short. Life is the single longest thing that you will ever do. Mm -hmm. So make good decisions because you have to live with them. But mm -hmm. when you make bad ones, also realize that life is long. And, and I get that. I think there's a flaw with life is short. I also see the value of where they're coming from with it. Mm -hmm. But life is short. Time heals all wounds. Not necessarily, but time does reduce the pain and the prominence of the wounds in your life. But there's wisdom in your wounds and there's power in your pain. And so I, I always like taking a look at these fake it till you make it was the one that you and I started with. Right. And, right. and the, the question is, you're not faking it if you're doing it. You're not doing like what is making it doing it at a level that the best in the world do it. Like, isn't that kind of an unfair like bar to set that until you're doing it at the absolute top level in the world, you're faking it. No, it's basically not fake it till you make it. It's practiced until you make it. Why are we associating practice, discipline, and growth with faking it? Totally. That's a problem. Same with, you know, oh, it's just imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. All of us feel as if we're not good enough, as if we're faking it, as if at any moment we're all going to be discovered. And instead of recognizing that what we're doing is actually growing and trying to get to where we are, we spend our, our mindfulness is on how what we're doing is disingenuous. It's fake. It's going to be outed as, uh, you know, faking it, mm -hmm. but we're not. Why did we associate growth and practice with faking it? And imposter syndrome takes something we all feel, the phrase imposter syndrome takes something we all feel and adds the word syndrome to it which is, a, is not in any way, shape or form associated with anything positive. Right. So we've said, and, and, and it was created to make people feel less alone. It was created to put a name to the fact that, hey, everybody, if you're feeling this, it is so recognizable that we have a name for it. Mm -hmm. But the name we gave was inherently diminishing to basically everyone. It, it took your humanity and yeah. made it into a disease. And we got to be careful on that stuff. Yeah. Instead of calling it like, oh, you mean being human? That's yeah. what you're, yeah, that thing that you're experiencing, that, that human. <laughs> well, one of the most brilliant things, and I wish desperately I could remember where this came from, is I either read or was told. It's weird. I don't remember the moment, but I sure as hell remember the, the insight, which was do, do not apologize for how you feel, because when you do, you apologize for truth. Mm -hmm. And that just, has stuck in my brain. I think it was probably told to me at a traumatic moment. That's probably why I can't remember it. It was probably at someone I loved, my, uh, who I loved their funeral. Sorry. It was at the funeral of someone whom I loved. And okay. I buried 20 of the people that I, I loved in my life. And, and most didn't live to see their 25th birthday. Someone at one of their funerals, I think, said that to me. Because I probably apologized for falling to pieces. And they just said to me, don't apologize for how you feel when you apologize for truth. Mm -hmm. And as I accidentally said to a friend of mine, the day after his girlfriend was murdered, I had no idea. He went out to dinner with me. He kept a dinner appointment the day after his girlfriend was murdered. And I said, uh, 
he, I said to him as we left, I said, you know, keep it together, my friend. And he said, no, I'm going to go, go home and lose my shit. And I just was kind of like, hey, man, sometimes losing your shit is the only way to keep it together long term. Mm -hmm. And uh, he still repeats that. And I don't remember saying it like the pieces of wisdom we put out into the world in a particular moment. We have absolutely no idea how they get picked up and taken uh, and moved forward in the world. Like share your story, share your insights, share your wisdom, because you have no idea how it's going to hit somebody else. And there's and, so like, much being mindful is also being mindful of how you can impact someone in a moment. It's not just about celebrating, oh, this is how I feel right now. What a great sunset, what an amazing moment. She's squeezing my hand, like relish this. It's also by being present in a moment and hearing someone else, mm -hmm. what they're afraid of, what they're hurt by, uh, what, what is, is holding them back. When you're present and mindful in those moments, it's your opportunity to say, here's my chance to help. And I think people think of mindfulness as, um, like I am here in this moment, Eckhart Tolle has to be like, but I also think it's paying attention. It's paying no, attention totally. to how you in a moment can shape the world of someone else. And I, I said that in my talk, there's no world. There's just 8 billion understandings of it. Mm -hmm. And that means when you're present in your world, especially when someone is allowing you to connect your world to theirs for a moment, mm -hmm. there's an opportunity there to change theirs. And when you're mindful, you don't just get to be more present in your life, you get to be more impactful in other people's. And open to other people impacting yours too. I think that's a really big thing that has come up. Like people have, people have literally called me their, their guru. People have called me like their teachers and all that. And I said, no, 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 we're just both students. And like that mentality of being able to open, yes, be open to how you may be impacting other people. But like I was, um, so there's an old Buddhist proverb that talks about the second arrow. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but I've taken that one and I've kind of tweaked it a little bit and I've called it the festering arrow. And the idea behind this analogy is that life has pain in it. That is inevitable. In some theologies, it's almost thought that you can't really have this existence without pain. So whether it's going to be your dog passes away or whatever it is, life is going to throw pain at you. But the way you deal with that pain is you know, your practice, that's where we're developing. So the idea is life is shooting arrows at us. So say life shoots an arrow, hits me in the leg. Now, what we tend to do as human beings is we tend to first thing arrows in my leg, instead of pulling it out and administering first aid and first aid may be going home, shattering, screaming, you know, whatever, all these things we've already talked about first aid for each individual person is different. However, they want to deal with the pain that's coming at them. So sometimes you need to be trained in first aid. Sometimes you innately know what you need to do to take that arrow out. But instead of doing that, most humans are probably going to take a picture of it, put it on Instagram and say, hey, look what happened to me today. And this is my story and this is what's happening. And instead of pulling it out, we'll walk around and we'll leave it in there so we can show people when you know we see them next and everything the whole time you know it's starting to get gangrenous now and it keeps festering and festering and festering until maybe we end up losing the whole leg from this experience and so i was telling the story in one of my um one of my courses that i'm running right now and this woman said like well what if i thought that i pulled the arrow out what if i thought i pulled the arrow out what if i thought that i had administered first aid and she was referring to uh, her her late husband had suicided. And she said, what if I thought that I did that? 
But now, 10 years later, I'm realizing that there's still some shards of that arrow still inside of me. And it opened up this, like my my mind, she was in that moment, she was my teacher. And my mind was kind of like blown open here. And we started taking, I'm really big on analogies. We started taking this whole thing to like, what is the scar that's left behind that too? This beautiful, you know, we can see scars as things that we're ashamed of as well. But what if we can see this scar as something that's beautiful, this symbol of what we've experienced and gone through. And those moments as you know, this, it, it's so humbling to be in those moments where you can just be, like you say, present with someone and be open to them bringing you into the moment, be open to them being your teachers of, of mindfulness. And, you know, one other story that comes to mind when, when we were talking about, again, time heals all wounds, uh, a close friend of mine also lost a loved one. And um, we were talking about how he doesn't know how he's going to get past this. He doesn't know how it's going to ever feel better, doesn't know how to move forward and all this kind of stuff. And he had gone to go talk with someone who had gone through a similar experience. And the story that was told to him was, uh, imagine that you're a guitar player and you're used to playing, you know, with all of your fingers and you're able to be articulate on the way that you're going up and down the fretboard and you know how to play all your songs and make all your chords, but then you lose one of your fingers. You can stop playing. You can get so caught up in the fact of like, oh man, I don't have a finger anymore. I'm never going to play the guitar again. And like life is so hard in this moment. And then he said, but what if you learn to play from the beginning? You learn to play and it's going to feel like that. It's going to feel like you're going to have to learn every chord again. It's going to feel like you're going to need to learn how to play the guitar all over again. But you can learn to play it just as well as you did when you had those other figures. Maybe even better if you're devoted to it but you're never going to grow that finger back. It's never going to heal the fact that you lost a finger, but it's not to say that you can't learn to play the guitar again. And that was just like, again, one of those moments where I'm like, yeah. And I was there kind of on suicide watch with that individual in that capacity of like thinking that I was again in this teacher role and just having like my mind blown in that moment of like the wherewithal that others have to teach. And I think that's one of the greatest gifts that I've had uh, on this journey as well. I love it. Intended it, to go there in this podcast. I mean, you somehow pulled that, <laughs> pulled that out of me. Well, it's, and I appreciate you sharing that too, because it's grief, such a powerful way to learn things about yourself. Mm. Um, and I apologize if I got the, the name wrong and I keep committing myself to trying to remember it. Uh, but you said something about what if we embrace that, that wound that the arrow is in mm-hmm. is beautiful. And uh, there's a Japanese art form, and I, I'm so sorry if I get the word wrong, called, kits, I guess it's kitsugi is one of the words for it, which is to take broken pottery, mm-hmm. put it back together with melted gold, mm. so that the most beautiful parts of the pottery are the parts where it was broken. And I was thinking about it as you said that, but, and also this moment where when we are most vulnerable and we feel weakest, right? And that's when we want to withdraw from people is often when we're most open to uh, actually getting something that sticks with us forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, after uh, I lost uh, uh, the woman I love to, to suicide um, after a sexual assault. And one of the things that I, I remember so vividly is how other people's stories helped connect me in a way that made me much stronger now. And one was I couldn't cry afterwards. I mean, there was a trauma of, of we, we found her. And so 
that complicates suicide is a complicated way to lose someone because it ties up so many emotions, grief, uh, grief, guilt, mm. anger, like they all meld together uh, in a way that makes it even harder to process because you're always hopping through one. And as soon as you feel one, another one pops up, mm. you feel uh, grief, which makes you feel guilty. How did I not see it? Which makes you feel angry. How could you do this to us? Which makes you remind what you've lost. And it, it starts to circle around. And it was weeks, even a couple of months before I could cry, but I'm driving along through Idaho. This I remember listening to the Moth podcast, Storytelling. And one woman who I believe is a chaplain for the main park service is doing a, Kate Braystrup, I believe is her name. And the episode was called Facing the Dark. And it's a magnificent episode to listen to of the Moth. But at one point in her speech, she says, Grief is just love squaring up to its oldest enemy. Mm. And there was something about that single phrase as she told her story that had me pull off the road and just break down. And it was the first time I'd cried. And in the time afterwards, someone pulled me aside too and told me something that I'll just share with anyone out here as you're trying to grapple with maybe losing someone. And the problem with being mindful sometimes is that you're mindful of your pain in that moment and you just feel trapped. And this has helped me get out of it sometimes or to understand the progression that's coming. And it's an example of someone in a moment where I was broken, pouring something into that wound that has now stuck with me and made me stronger. And she said, sorry, he said, what you're going through right now, imagine your life as this box and inside the box is a button. And when the button is pushed, massive pain courses through your body and your mind. Mm -hmm. And inside the box is like one of those big red balls that you play dodgeball with in, in elementary school. And the ball is almost the exact same size as the inside of the box, which means anytime the box gets jostled at all, it hits the button mm -hmm. and it just courses through your body, anything in your life that jostles you even a little bit. But what happens over time is time does not heal all wounds, but time shrinks the ball. Mm -hmm. And so that ball of grief and pain and joy and memories and the loss of it is always in your life. But what it does is it gets smaller and smaller and your life can move more and more and you can be jostled more and more and it won't always hit the button. But for the rest of your life, there will always be a time just statistically where something's going to hit the box and the ball will still hit the button. But as it gets smaller and smaller, it become less and less frequent but you're not forgetting them. You're not letting go of their memory. What you're doing is simply recognizing that time shrinks this ball, mm. or maybe it makes the box bigger is probably a better analogy, but I've never forgotten that. And every time that button gets hit, I do reflect on this hurts, but I'm also like, it's been a long time since that button got, got hit and that's healing. And then you feel guilty because, well, shouldn't it be hit more often if I truly, and on and on we go, our brain will always come up with why there's something wrong with this. But I just wanted to share that because, man, that, that still helps me. And so, everybody's dealing with a loss. Everybody's dealing with a loss. And time does not heal that wound. Just mm -hmm. makes the box bigger. And that means the ball doesn't always find a way to hit the button. I love that. I've actually, I've heard that one before, but I don't think I've ever heard it put as well. And I've even tried delivering that one before, and I don't think I've ever delivered it as well as you just delivered it too. So I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I have a list in front of me of the things that I thought 
you and I were going to touch on in this podcast episode and talking about the lollipop story and everything. And I am so happy at where it did go. I am so happy that we were able to be organic with this and, and, you know, really get into, I think so much of, of what people are hungering for a little bit right now. And that's permission in a lot of ways to experience things the way that they need to experience it. Breaking down some of those stigmas, like you said, this idea of time heals all things and all that kind of stuff. It's, uh, it's super powerful to be able to talk and, and have these like truth bombs with somebody who's who's obviously lived a lot of experiences. And, you know, I right after I think it was when I heard you speak live and I wanted to touch on that real quick before we, we close out. But I was I was so in awe with you at the fact that it was very shortly after you shared it with the audience. But it was very shortly after you had lost your loved one that you were up and you were talking so passionately about these topics. And I know that you're, you know, known as the lollipop guy. I know you're known as like the day one leadership guy, but I've always thought of you as like someone who's not afraid to talk truth. And I feel like that I'm really uh, happy that that's the way that this podcast has, has ended up going here. So thank you so much with that. The one thing that I did want to kind of talk about before um, we kind of part ways because I just want to be uh, respectful of the time is one of the reasons why I'm sitting here with you now and having this conversation is because of the way one of your talks impacted me. So I didn't want to leave without having that conversation. And you had said in one of your podcast or not one of your podcasts, one of the talks about not being afraid to ask for help. And, you know, we talked briefly about this idea of imposter syndrome and all this kind of stuff. And I remember feeling this is when I first started keynote speaking. This was, um, yeah, maybe seven years ago or so. And I remember feeling that need like, oh, I can't ask for help. I have to pretend like I've done a million talks already. I have to pretend like I've been in front of thousands of people speaking and all this. Well, the truth was I, I hadn't. I was just starting out. I had done like free talks at the Rotary Clubs and, you know, all this kind of stuff that you do when you're just trying to hone in your craft. And yet when I heard you speak about not being afraid to ask for help and this idea that, you know, you maybe if you ask for something, maybe it's not even help. Maybe it's just something you want or something you want to experience. Maybe you won't always get to the full extent of what you asked for, but you will seldom ever get further behind than where you already are. You maybe will land somewhere in between that. And you told a, an awesome story that illustrates that. But I waited for you after the conversation, after the talk, waited until everyone left and said, hey, Drew, my name's Jason and I'm getting new or I'm new in this whole like field of speaking. Will you help me? And you kind of looked at me, you paused for a second, you looked and said, I see what you're doing here. Okay, <laughs> what do you need help with? And you were so awesome with um, like setting up a meeting with me. You helped me go through my website. We talked about the industry. We talked about all of this. And I think more than anything, you know, again, day one, Lollipop, all this, that just speaks to that piece that you mentioned first story about that guy that passed away that made that impact in everybody's lives and how he wanted to make that difference. And I think, you know, you're doing an amazing job with all the work that you're doing, making that difference now. And you certainly made a big difference in my life and allowed me to more confidently move forward as a speaker. And um, yeah, so I just wanted to have the opportunity because I haven't spoken to you in so long to thank you for that and to let that kind of be an inspiration as to like, when we can step outside our comfort zone and ask for help and be willing to give a little bit of ourselves in those moments, um, what can really come of that? So I just wanted to make sure I said thank you for that before we parted ways. 
and I so appreciate, like, that means the world to me. Uh, it's, you came up and, and because I, we haven't even talked about sort of the work and just so people know the question, my work is about saying, here's what your values are. And based on some behavioral psychology tricks, sorry, my psychology professor friends hate it when I call them tricks, mm. but the idea that questions are more powerful driver of human behavior than, uh, than goals, than orders, than requests. And so the idea is you take every value and you turn it into a question and your brain will desperately seek the answer to relieve cognitive discomfort. And I think what you're referring to is what have I tried today that might not work, but I tried it anyway. And it comes out of this, uh, the, the value of courage, which is a commitment to taking action when there's the possibility of loss. And that was a story of a couple of guys who engaged in rejection therapy. There's a great talk by Zha Zhang on TED that talks about 100 days of rejection. But they learned that you don't get rejected as often as you think because they dedicated one day a month to being rejected as many times as possible in a 24-hour period. Yeah. One day a month. And it, they discovered that you don't get rejected as often as you think. When you expect it and it happens, it has no impact on your self-worth. And eventually that spills over into every other day. But the piece that you're talking about is even when you are rejected, you are almost always offered something better than what you currently have. And Jaws got a bunch of great stories. One of theirs was they used to ask cops if they could shoot at stop signs like the comedy Superbad, the movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're like, no, no cop ever let us touch their gun, but two let us drive their squad car around. And I'm glad that hit. Uh, I had a guy tell me he wants to do, uh, he wants to chat with me. He took an entire trip to Florida with his family and that's all he did was try to get rejected the entire trip. And amazing things happen. Like even if you hop in the, fast pass line and he's like yeah i don't have a fast pass but i've got kids can we just go it through it and they're like yeah all right i guess so because they asked and i appreciate you saying that also for what it's worth i'm thank you for the opportunity to talk about some of these things because let's face it you go on podcasts and i welcome the opportunity to talk and i guess maybe now with the pandemic and doing podcasts in the same room all the time maybe i'm seeking that opportunity but usually you have to say the same things that you say when you're on stage. Mm. And I, well, I, I love the chance that we got a chance to like, what we're basically done now. And that's the first time I've mentioned the foundational uh, psychology behind my work and how it works. And the idea that I have six questions every day that comprise the leadership test. I love talking about that, but that's what I get paid to do. Mm. And as much as I love it, it's kind of cool to come on to a podcast and, what we end up talking about are some of the reasons that I do have this leadership test mm -hmm. because this psychological trick that I try to pull on my brain so that I live my values is because the leadership test and the day one philosophy is a weapon with which I've tried to equip my better angels mm. because they're doing battle with my demons and my demons are incredibly well-funded and very heavily armed. And I think that's true for all of us. So when I talk about leadership and making a difference and impact, it's not because I've really got shit figured out or I'm a good guy. It's because I think I'm a bad guy and I'm filled with so much frustration and anger and hate sometimes at a world that just, you go out and you try to talk about positive impact and then Donald Trump becomes president, you know, not to get all political, but I was just filled with rape. When you, you lose someone after a sexual assault and then a sexual predator gets elected president of the United States and is defended widely for it, it, you just get so enraged. And 
what I teach isn't because I've got it figured out. I'm a leader. Here's how to be as, as happy and impactful and lollipop moment as myself. It's about saying, I don't want to be most days, Mm -hmm. but I even have tattooed on the inside of my left arm. What would the man I want to be do? So we're, we know the worst parts of all of ourselves. Like every, you know, every bad thing you've ever done and we judge ourselves for it, but look, it's not how we feel that, destroys us it's how we judge ourselves for how we feel mm-hmm. and that i think you were getting to to when we talked a little bit before is it's not that we feel anger or jealousy or fear or grief or loss it's that we then judge ourselves for feeling it mm-hmm. i'm a bad dude for being angry and what i try to do is recognizing that my demons are well equipped you know i'm a guy who's bipolar i'm a recovering alcoholic they're there So I consciously need to come up with a way of reminding myself to be the version of myself I want to be rather than the version of myself my brain pushes me to be sometimes. And I think that's why I talk about day one leadership, not because I got it figured out and now I'm, you know, a guru to follow. It's because it's the only way I keep from being a total asshole. (laughs) And because honestly, I think my instinct and my default position is to be that. And I'm like, I don't want to be though, because I don't want to impact people that way. And that would make her and my dad and all these people I've lost really ashamed of me. And, but I'm sometimes ashamed of the thoughts that I have and the anger that I feel. And then it's sort of like, yeah, but I don't act on most of them. Mm-hmm. And I think that someone said to me once, you're a guy who's supposed to be, you're supposed to be a good person. And I'm like, I honest to God never claimed to be a good person but I am a person who wants to do good things. Mm -hmm. And I think that that mind shift for me made me feel a lot better about myself. I don't think I'm a good guy, but my mission in life is to do good things. Mm -hmm. Now I recognize that in some ways I'm going against my instincts when I try to do good things. And I think I judge myself because I look out into the world and I see all these gurus and people and monks who actually want are like are good people. They want to do good things. They don't have to pull a psychological trick on themselves to do it. But I think I got to let go of that. I think we all got to let go of that. And if anything, I guess I'll close with this. I because I know we're we're running on time on for you. But for a long time, when we're taught, if you want to seem impressive, make people look at you and say, "Oh wow, I I I can't do that." Mm. But I think maybe the best thing is to make people look at you and say, "Oh my God, I thought I was the only one." So for any of you out there who's like, I want to be a good person, but I don't think I am. Hey, I, I've got however many million views on a talk about making a positive impact. I wrote a book about leadership that matters, and I don't think I'm a good guy, but I want to do good things. And as long as I come up with a plan to make sure that that what I do is good, isn't that what defines us? Mm-hmm. Not the negative thoughts we have, but how we act on them. And I try not to act on many of my worst thoughts. I try to act on my best ones. And sometimes we got to be conscious and mindful of that because sometimes our good thoughts aren't as plentiful as our bad. So let's execute on the smaller portion. So maybe your good thoughts are 20% of what you think, but if your actions are 80% good, who cares? And stop judging yourself. Being mindful also means being fair to yourself (laughs) and your feelings. Oh, man, so many truth bombs there. You know, something that I often talk about is we all have 
these chimpanzees inside of us that if I'm strong enough, I will take that sandwich from your mouth. If I'm hungry and stronger than you are, I'm going to take it. Or if you have something I want, I'm going to chimpanzees will eat babies. Like that's sometimes all I'll say to people is like, they'll eat their own young. And I'll like take that, things I didn't think I'd hear today for $200. <laughs> but that's something that's inside of us. That's in there. And one of the things that makes us human is this, you know, left prefrontal cortex that allows us to rationalize and look at the decisions that we want to make. And that's that superpower. And I think you nailed it there. So thank you so much for all of that. If people want to find out more about you, find your book, all this, where can they go? drewdudley.com d-r-e-w-d-u-d-l-e-y.com and it's all found there and uh yeah it's great there's the book there's a bunch of videos online and hey we're doing it uh, we haven't talked at all about the day one process and i love that but if you ever want to go through it yourself make your own leadership test your own tools you can get it now for it's usually like 200 bucks we're making it 10 bucks now because we're just trying to move as many as we can because all the funds are going to uh, frontline workers uh, during covid uh, we started that last March, and I cannot believe that it's been a year. But I know they're still fighting. And so for all of you frontline workers out there uh, listening to this, uh, you haven't been forgotten. I know it must seem like that now, but thank you for what you're doing. Amazing. And thank you for joining me today, Drew. It's been a pleasure. Maybe we'll have to get together off podcast and uh, catch up on the rest of this. But thank you so much for today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Have a good one. 